1: and welcome to Sober Gratitudes. Hi everyone, my name is Sarah, and I'm so excited you're here for an amazing episode with an incredible guest. Her name is Lisa Boucher, and she is an award-winning author of her fifth book called Raising the Bottom, Making Mindful
0: Choices in a Drinking Culture. Ms. Boucher has been sober, over 30 years using the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and is the mother of twin adult sons. She was compelled to write Raising the Bottom when she realized after 24 years of working in the hospitals as an RN, that doctors and traditional healthcare
1: offer few solutions for women with addiction issues. Lisa, hello and welcome to Sober Gratitudes.
2: Hi, Sarah, thank you for having me.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm so honored that you're here today. There's so much I want to talk to you about. Um, and But first, I'd like to hear from you about what your act of alcoholism looked like, how you found recovery, and then expand a little bit more about why you were compelled to write your book.
2: Okay. So it is a very, I'm, my drinking story is a very short story, actually. And what compelled me to sobriety was growing up as a child of an alcoholic mother who hit a very low bottom. My mother was also an RN. She, um, I mean, I cannot talk about my addiction without talking about hers because we were so enmeshed with her, my sisters. um, My mother, like I said, she was an RN. She got addicted early on. I don't ever remember her being sober. She got sober when I was in my early 20s. So. She got addicted to benzos, which were the pharmaceuticals industry's first billion-dollar drug. And that's what started her addiction. And she had a very low bottom. It was shameful what happened to her, because the medical community had a big hand in her not getting well. So for 25 years, she sought out psychiatrists, therapists. They went to the Cleveland Clinic. I grew up in Youngstown. so she saw some very notable people and nobody ever diagnosed her as like, hey, you're an alcoholic, go to rehab. So they had, they kept medicating her and saying she was depressed and it just got worse and worse and worse. So that is a very, you know, I could go on for hours about that, but to move it through. So that, watching that all unfold. And so my addiction started probably when I was 12, and I was, I had a beer, and I remember smoking pot behind the Jewish community center, where I, I, like I said, I grew up in Youngstown. You were either Catholic or Jewish, it seemed, and so I'm Catholic, and I love the Jewish friends, and we went to the Jewish center, and that's where it started, but I didn't really feel like I was you know, I had two older sisters. So I think by then you do get introduced earlier to things when you're a younger sibling. And I had a horse and um, I know I talk about this in the book and my horse saved me. There's no doubt about that from getting really enmeshed into addiction because I was obsessed with this horse. He was my best friend. Um, he saved me. I saved him. It was one of those pet um owner relationship. So my drinking then picked up, I think, when I got my driver's license and you're driving around and I stole my older sister's ID. I'm going to bars when I'm 15. I'm doling out fake names. I'm having a blast. And this is back in the day, though, a 3-2 beer. So it was very easy. I mean, I'm 15. I look 18 easily with makeup and a, a rhinestone cigarette holder. I used to smoke. So all this drama and the big hats and, you know, so (laughs) I'm just playing this role. Like, who is Lisa? I don't know, I'm just this role. And so, you know, the drinking picks up, but it still doesn't look dangerous because this is what everybody does. And it's on weekends and there's a little bit of drugs in and out of there, but nothing hardcore. I leave home a few days after graduating from high school. I go to Columbus, the drinking picks up. I'm living on Ohio State campus. I mean, but here again, it's very easy to be an alcoholic in your 20s because everybody drinks, it seems like, alcoholically. And I have noticed that the people that never move on from that college drinking, kind of like I did, are the ones that have a problem, where a lot of people do outgrow that. They drink heavily during college, and then when college is over, they're able to get on with their lives, put the drinks down, and actually do things. So I started to notice things were a little off when my friends were doing just that. They were graduating from college, they're getting married, they're having kids, they're buying a house, and I am in college now for about eight years at this point and I still haven't graduated so that um, and my mother she's got sober so you'll have to read about it in the book and she had this very dramatic accident I guess and she gets sober so by the time my drinking is really escalating my mom is sober now so I'm drinking and there's a lot of craziness going on with, you know, I'm married and divorced by the time I'm 21, raging alcoholic, crazy guy. That marriage didn't last. Um, He introduced me to cocaine. So that is part of my story during that period of my life. And then I got rid of him and was single for three years, just having a lot of fun. Met my current husband. We've been married for a long time, amazingly. Um, He is a drinker. So I've got that perspective as well. He still drinks. And that's been a challenge. I'm not going to lie, because there were times in our marriage where, you know, like attracts like. And we gravitate to people like us. And so did my husband have a drinking problem? I don't know, but I will say this. Had I kept drinking, I think we both would have been off the train. <laughs> so with me getting sober, that certainly tempered it a lot for him, um, especially as we've gotten older. He's really calmed down. But you know, so going on with when did I realize, like, wow, I have a problem. And like I said, I, it, it was not this dramatic. Um, I had a few things, you know, my mom started to drop little, um, say little things, just little things. I was living in Dallas. I was a flight attendant. So there was a lot of chaos in that kind of lifestyle. I was new to the job. So I didn't have a regular schedule. We're traveling all over. Our first year of marriage is like one big date. It's fun. We're meeting in other cities. We're living in Dallas. I'm based in Houston. We're buying all this wine by the case. We found this great gourmet grocery store, Marty's. They're probably still there in Dallas. And so we're having a blast, you know, but alcohol is in the picture very much so, but because I'm working and I'm, you know, newly married to a professional and everything's fine, I'm feeling everything's fine and when we moved back to Dayton from Texas (laughs) when it really I believe I crossed that imaginary line into alcoholism and I could not adjust with the nine to five job I went back to a marketing job because flying and commuting was too much. So that's when it really started to pick up for me and the progression. So it really helped to have some knowledge about alcoholism. And I understood it was a progressive disease. I learned this through my mother. I saw it happen to her. She started out as a very social drinker who could only handle a couple to drinking a fifth a day. So I watched that progression and her completely fall apart. So when I found myself leaving my job at lunch every day to go meet gals for, I used to buy all the media for this hotel management company, and we always convened over drinks. Well, I'm drinking now and getting pretty much drunk and going back to work and just shutting my office door and taking a little nap for an hour till I can see, no longer see double kind of thing. So uh, this is what's going on. And, you know, you all the props still look in place. I'm wearing these pretty suits to work and scarves and we're going out on the weekends and I'm employed and you know we make these excuses for ourselves. But when I went to my little home bar and I'm pulling on the door and this panic is rising in me because it's not open and I think it's noon and like, why is my water hole closed? And I look at my watch and it's 10 a.m. And that was like a slap in the face or a bucket of cold water when I realized the alarm bells in my head were going off, progression, progression, progression. Because I'm craving this drink and they're not even open yet. And now it's the morning. You know, I never said I was a morning drinker. I never had shakes. I never had any of these things, but that really, um, and so I didn't quit drinking that. I drank for another two years, but when we start to have those conversations with ourselves that am I drinking too much? Is this normal? Believe me, you're on a dangerous path already, but I was nowhere near ready to look at it, address it, anything like that. So Um, time passes, my husband's starting to say, you know, I think you're drinking a little too much and that kind of thing. And I got fired from that job and all this stuff starts to kind of snowball. Um, and and really there were a number of things, but it was like in this week, I remember saying if I ever have shakes, if I ever drink more than I intend, if I ever get drunk when I don't intend, I'll know I have a problem and sort of all those things happened within a week, and that really was it, Sarah. I just said, you know what? Um, I need to address this now, or it's going to get bad. I just knew I would be like my mother if I didn't stop, and she was just so out of control, and I just know that I have that. I'm a part of her. That addiction is just so strong, and I went to, I did not go to rehab. I called my mom. I said, I think I need to go home. So I drove four and a half hours to Youngstown, stayed with her. And of course, she was in um, Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm -hmm. I saw that work for her beautifully. And so she rallied all her friends around me. Mm -hmm. And after about a week, I said, you know, this is lovely with the ladies, but I need to go back home. This is not where I live. And so I came back to Dayton. I went to a meeting every day and I relapsed. So why did I relapse after three months? Because I didn't do anything else. I didn't get a sponsor. I didn't work steps. I didn't listen to a word anybody said. I was not convinced I was an alcoholic. And that took a very long time because, you know, honest to God, that first step were powerless over alcohol. I didn't believe I was, but my life was so unmanageable. I mean, when you're in college for 10 years and you don't have a degree yet, that's unmanageable. Mm-hmm. Like, why are you not graduating? Um, my life was one big party. I'm working and I'm going out after work. This is how we lived. I didn't have my sons yet. So it was that was my life. And so when I, um, after that three months, when I realized, okay, I, I, was in a meeting and I pretty much planned I'm leaving the meeting and I'm going across the street to the bar and I'm going to drink because this is ridiculous and I don't think I'm alcoholic. So that's what I did. And I got very, very drunk. I'm not a whole lot of beer. And I went through a drive through. I had a real affinity for drive throughs. I couldn't pass them without like my car just bowed in. And so I bought a bottle of wine, drank these beers, got come out hugging sick. And then a light bulb again went off. You know, I go back to the meeting and I heard that one line. It gets so annoyed that they read all this crap all the time. But that one line, the result was nil until we let go. Absolutely. And I heard it that day. I'd heard it, what, 90 times before because I went to a meeting every day for three months. But I heard it and I knew that, okay, I cannot live my old life. I need to give up some of these drinking buddies, and if I still wanna stay friends, we're gonna have to have coffee dates or go to breakfast or something like that. But it is no longer going to work for me to say, okay, I'm gonna be sober and continue to hang around with my drinking buddy friends, going to bars, really not committed to sobriety because I was angry. I was very angry even though nobody was making me get sober. I was extremely angry And what I was making myself do, and that was go to meetings and not drink. But, you know, I started to feel better. And then, boom, I find out I'm pregnant with twins. So that certainly helped. Um, And that's a whole other story. But that's kind of how my sobriety, nothing earth shattering, no DUIs, never went to jail. And for all intents and purposes, I had a very high bottom, hence the book. Yeah. Raising the Bottom, because prior to Raising the Bottom, I wrote fiction, and my mother used to call me and say, what are you working on, Lisa? And I tell her whatever book, and she said, why don't you write about women and alcoholism? And I'd say, well, there's, there's a lot of legs to that stool, right? We could go in so many different directions. And my mother passed in 2011, and the idea, I think, came, I don't know, maybe four years, whenever, it was some years after her death, but literally I woke up one morning and I just, boom, the book was there. And I knew I wanted to talk about why do we have to hit these low bottoms? We don't. Because you know, Sarah, social media and everybody glorifies this alcohol. When a lot of the way they're glorifying it, people are already in alcoholism, but they've made it, They've we've normalized it in so many ways. And it's not normal to drink six days a week. I'm sorry, that is not normal. But people call that social drinking. And that's what I'd like to talk about, because why are we... So many people wait till, you know, their kids won't even speak to them anymore or they have right. put their children in danger or they're on their third marriage. Um, that's what my sister, her path has been mm-hmm. not to take her inventory, but watching it, it's been very painful because how low does it have to get when you realize the alcohol is the one constant in right. all this drama. Right.
1: And I, yes. And I, that makes sense to me because I know for myself, I, my active alcoholism was progressed over 25 years and over the course of my life, if I ever had a problem, it was because of such and such and such and such. And I never correlated it to the fact that I was drinking, um, alcoholically was drinking in response to problems, you know, um, past traumas or, um, undiagnosed anxiety and depression was self-medicating so i never blamed I, I never like made that connection that wow if i just take out the alcohol then all of these other problems would go away um and it took for me to get to like a place of again it wasn't like a super low bottom either but it was a secretive bottom. Like nobody knew about it. Cause I was so ashamed that I could, couldn't could control my drinking. I really wanted to, because alcohol was like my sidekick, you know, I made at 14 years old. I was like, this is, this is my partner for life, you know, to get me through hard times and to also make, you know, parties even more fun or gatherings more interesting, you know, and to, to help me, you know, numb, uncomfortable feelings. And, um, and I think that's like, what I'd love to talk about with you is how you know that's people can misunderstand um, that alcoholism does not d- does not discriminate. Like you don't have to look a certain way, or you don't have to drink a certain amount, or you don't have to drink every day. Because I know you weren't a daily drinker, correct?
2: Correct. Correct. I did not drink. And that really kept me out there a lot. Now, I probably was drinking five days a week at least, but because I wasn't drinking every day, I thought, well, alcoholics wake up drinking, don't they? And then of course I was comparing myself to my mother with this low bottom drinking a fifth a day. And I'm going, well, I'm not doing that. I'm nowhere near that. But it was what is not working in my life. And you know, it's amazing when I got sober, I graduated valedictorian in nursing school, I went back, I'm like, Jesus, I got to get a something in case this marriage doesn't work. How am I going to put food on the table for my children? And that was my motivation to go to nursing school. That's the truth. I mean, it's not because I wanted to be this Florence Nightingale. But um That is why I went. And then I went back to school later and got an English degree and graduated um, with honors kind of thing. So I'm finishing degrees and doing things in sobriety that I couldn't seem to handle sober. And I went to nursing school when I had twin babies that were six months old. That was a very difficult time in my life but because of the principles of sobriety and the one day at a time and relying on a higher power, I was able to do what is to me now unthinkable. I think back, I'm going, how did I do that? I was God, honestly, it was, there was no other way. And, and that was when my marriage was in lots of turmoil, lots and lots of turmoil. My husband had an affair, all this stuff is going on. And I was just, very tunnel vision on, you know what? I can't worry about him right now. And I think that's why he had the fair because there was some immaturity on his part. He just was no longer my focus because I'm trying to save my own life, parent my twins that I'm clueless about, never really had any experience with babies and go to nursing school and stay sober. Mm -hmm. So that was a lot on my plate. but you know, we make it through these hard things because we're sober. You can do hard, you've done hard, you shared some about your life, Sarah. I mean, you've met some amazing challenges with your sons and you know your son and your journey and all of that, so we can do hard when we 're sober, but we cannot do that when we're
1: drinking. no, yeah, it was the easy button, you know like i you know that for me i didn't know how else to cope with things and so I would just push that easy button which was you know popping the cork on the wine bottle and then it became easier when i could when the twisties came out i mean that was great like the, i just just turn the 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 cork, you know it wasn't a cork anymore and i just drank and drank and drank and then you know that the the progression yes for me was just um it escalated you know the, the last two years before i got sober to a point that was um it started to fright it really frightened me and i was you know my uh was getting sick and i was not vocal about it and i was hiding the alcohol and i again i was just so i was so ashamed that i didn't want anyone to see that part of me because i didn't want to be addicted like that and i and i but i couldn't imagine my life with or without drinking so it's like how do i stop and that's you know when i also found the program that was kind of like my the end point um, for me and um, and now since I've been sober, you know, to, to be exposed to the sober community of, and especially the women who are sober, I've learned so much um, by reading books like yours. And, um, and I just really love being a part of this community of, of women who are so non, mostly non judgmental, and uh, just really wanting to help each other out. And, and we're up against a giant, you know, big alcohol, like we're, oh. And it's really, um, it's, it's frightening. It's saddening to me. Um, I, I have nothing but compassion for the women who are struggling in this mommy wine culture and they can't get out of it because there is, like you say, there's this, this enormous pressure for, um, and you know, alcohol, the, you, you say in your book, the industry continues to glamorize and portray it as something necessary to partake in order to have a glamorous life in order to like, to be, you know, this glamorous yeah. They equate it with fun.
2: That's like the buzzword. You, you can't have fun or relax unless you're drinking. And it's just such a lie because as you alluded to earlier, it magnifies any anxiety or depression a person yeah. may have. We keep forgetting alcohol is a depressant. It depresses the central nervous system. It also shuts down our prefrontal cortex, which is our higher reasoning. So any decisions you make while even after a glass or two of wine is not going to maybe be the same decision that you would have made if you were completely sober. Right. And so as a parent, how is that? I mean, my parenting was... Well, I'm just going to say, my sons say, Mom, you were, you crushed it. I mean, they give me mad kudos. That was only because I was sober. Had I been a drinking mom, I don't think it would have turned out as well for me or my sons, um, because I know I have their respect. I think they were always a little afraid of me. Mm-hmm. And um, I was the disciplinarian as opposed to my husband. <laughs> and um we did fine and we have a great relationship today that, you know, unfortunately my sons do drink. It like crushes me because I'm like, guys, our family genes. Hello. But you know what? I feel the best we can do is at least I gave them coping skills.
1: Right. And you stay sober. So I mean- exactly. So they know, yeah. they know it's possible. Yeah, I've heard of people say, and I haven't been asked this myself, but some people, you know, parents in the program will say, oh, I have friends and family who say, why do you still go to these meetings? Why do you like work this program every day? And, you know, like, what, what's the purpose? And, you know, a lot of them say what, what I would answer as, you know, especially for those who have children is that, you know, if I, because, you know, there is a lot of addiction on my side of the family um, and, where a lot of us are recovered, um, I know that there's this chance that I might pass this down, or not me not intentionally pass it down. But, but the thing is, like, because I got sober when my oldest was around seven or eight, I am um, so grateful because they, they actually, my older two know that I'm in sobriety. They're actually very proud of me. They have no memories of me being drunk. Um, I think, you know, my my oldest son actually, um, I think I damaged my relationship with him and I realized that early on in my recovery because I saw it begin to get better. Like he was, because he was coming, he was seeking me out again and he was like more affectionate with me again. And I realized, wow, he hadn't been doing that for a couple of years and I didn't even see it. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing, like, I think, mom, like, like when we're in it, it's hard to see the damage we're doing. And mm-hmm. now that I'm out of it, and I've seen like these beautiful, like, since I've had the, the experience of being in a, a woman with active alcohol, a mother with active alcoholism, and now a mother who's in sobriety, and I can, you know, be a mother using the program as a way to even parent and to be a wife and to be in a marriage. Like it really, it's a design for living and the coping skills that my children have. I mean, I look at them and I think, wow, they have better coping skills now than I did at the age of, of, uh, 37, mm-hmm. you know? And so I just think it's, um, you know, I'll get off my soapbox here, but I just, I find no, it's
2: important. It's, it's really important because I think that does shape whether someone, you know, like I said, we can't control whether our kids are going to end up in alcoholism, but I do think when they have some coping skills besides drinking, that they have a better chance of not falling, and I've watched my sons, they both were division one athletes, Mm -hmm. and they went through some stuff with sports, with injuries, with heartbreaks, with, and talking to them about their feelings and how are you going to handle that and what it how are you going to cope with that I mean I was able to say things like that as opposed to oh god in this awful and we're all just drinking over it kind right. of thing. <laughs> and I saw families doing that you know i oh so it's not a solution and no. it, it is we it changes parenting 180 degrees no doubt
1: yeah, completely, and, that, and that's um, a conversation that I'm seeing happening all over social media right now, and um, moms getting together to form groups to support each other, uh, mothers who are truly, really wanting to get and stay sober. And um, I know for me, I needed a community, I needed the community um, outside of social media, and it wasn't until I had a number of years under my belt that I you know, tapped into this, this venue, and now more than ever during COVID, I mean, to be able to connect with people like you and I are connecting right now, I see you. I can, you know, I can have this wonderful conversation with you, very important um, topics to discuss that um, can be life saving for many people, for women in particular. I know that, that that really you focus a lot in your book about women and the, their relationship with alcohol. And then, so I want to get into that a little bit if you can um, sure. talk about more. Like, you, you say that. Um, you know, I started off by saying how you, you wrote the book because you were compelled um, by what you were seeing as an RN, that you saw traditional healthcare offering few solutions to women with addiction issues. You wrote the book, well, it was published in 2017. So you wrote it for, I'm assuming a few years before then. Have you seen a change? Like, is it getting better?
2: Is there hope? Well, there's always hope, Sarah. There's always hope. But is it getting better in the healthcare arena? No, it's a disaster. And so I did a whole chapter, doctors, nurses, and healthcare, because what I'm seeing, and just to give your listeners a little background, so I've been a nurse for 26 years, I think now. I spent half of my career in the emergency room, and the other half has been in the psych ward. So- I've seen, and, and those two departments are magnets for the alcoholics. So, you know, in the ED, you're getting, well, you're getting both. You're getting the mental health issues, you know, usually come in through there, the suicidal people. And then, of course, the traumas and the wrecks and all the things alcohol related. And I remember I started to do just unscientific research with paying attention probably 10 years into my nursing career and really noticing that 85 to 90% of what I believe came through the ER doors were mostly alcohol or drug related, whether it was esophageal varices where you're bleeding out, liver disease, um, liver failure, unchecked diabetes, all sorts of things had alcohol in the background.
1: And can I interject real quick? Sure, sure. Can you tell me, can you give me, um, give the listeners a, a picture of what, who these people were? Where were they coming from?
2: Okay. So these people, like we've said before, there are no demographics. Okay. So they look like the sweet little lady that goes to your church. They look like the, the biker drug addict that you would expect or stereotype. Um, they look, we didn't do a lot of kids. We didn't at the Cause I was at a level one trauma. So we didn't take children unless it was a trauma. We'd stabilize them and ship them out. So until I worked in psych, I can't really speak about the kids, but these are people that look like everybody, but here's the deal. The ones that were the stereotypical homeless drunk on the street were the ones that the staff, the stuff coming out of their mouth shameful, truly. And nobody knew I was in recovery at the time. So I've outed myself now since the book and everything. And in psych, there's a little different mindset with that kind of stuff. But in the ER, just listening to the staff, shocking that these people, and that's not changed, Sarah. Healthcare is clueless about addiction. It is shameful. What happened to my mother in the 60s is how they still continue to treat drug addicts and alcoholics today. They throw medication at them. A lot of the rehabs we have in our area are just pathetic. I'm just going to say it, they're pathetic. Some are good, some are good, some are pathetic. I had a sponsee actually that ended up in one of the so-called rehabs. She said it was a joke. I mean, all they did is everybody's laying around just waiting for their suboxin or whatever. I mean, this is not recovery. That is not recovery. Um, we could go on and on about that. I mean, that might have a role, um, medication assisted therapy for a short time or someone to help them get over a hump. I totally support that for heroin addicts and opioid addicts, but, um, to just do that, nothing else, discharge them back to the streets. They come at it. It's a revolving door. This is not helping anybody. It's like a band. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really is. I mean, and, and some of the, you know, the doctors, I have yet to work on a nursing unit where the nurses or the doctor or somebody wasn't in the throes of addiction. And I could see it, but nobody on the staff saw it until these people did things that were so egregious and then they got fired. Because even within the healthcare industry, there is no gentle way to help people get help without, I mean, the Ohio Board of Nursing is some of the worst with, um, pejorative measures that they take toward nurses. So nurses are scared to say, you know what? I need some help. They're scared and they don't, won't do it until, you know, they're losing their license because they're catching them. So there's just so many layers of why is the addiction piece not getting better? And I do think a big part of this puzzle starts with health care. But we are fighting now Big Pharma, just like we've got big alcohol in one corner and in the other corner, we have big pharma and these two are lobbyists are huge money that they throw to get people on their medical assisted treatment because they're making a fortune, right? If people would really understand this. They pushed the opioid epidemic, Mm -hmm. and now they're cleaning up on the backside financially, they, meaning big pharma, Mm -hmm. on the backside with this medical-assisted therapy. Mm -hmm. So they are winning in the money war, and that's all they really care about. They don't care about the lives that are being decimated, the lives that are not getting treatment. Now, if you're doing intensive treatment, and you're taking MAT, and you're getting your life back, great. That's what it's used for. But if you're just sitting in a flop house or running the streets and just using and abusing, that's not recovery and you're not helping anyone. So, you know, this is what I'm seeing. They they might ask about the drinking, but I hear psychiatrists say things like, let me give you a few examples. I hear them say things we do treatment team every morning where we discuss every patient and they will say, well, so-and-so they, um, they have a history of alcohol abuse, but um, now they say they're fine and they're just drinking once a week. And, uh, so we'll let them keep the clonopin." I mean, this is how they talk. It's just, you, you just want to explode or they'll say, um, they, uh, they had a short stint in recovery. They said that AA didn't work. And uh, now, they're, you know, we'll, now they're very depressed. They're drinking again. So we'll up their antidepressant. These are the conversations that are still going on in healthcare, and I think it's shameful. Mm-hmm. Instead of, I mean, can a doctor make a person quit drinking? Absolutely not. But what can they do? They can talk to the patient and say, you know what? This is your fifth admission in six months. You seem to, every time you come in, you have alcohol in your system. And it's what your BAL is way over the legal limit. Mm-hmm. And you can continue to not function and are depressed. I think your issue is alcoholism. So let's talk about that. Are you interested in rehab? Give them options. Those are the conversations we need to have because number one, it tells the person now we're, we're, we've we're got your number, okay? So no longer can you lie to us about this. We've got your number. If you want help, there is no shame in having this disease. Let's talk about how many people have this very common problem now mm-hmm. and let's address it so you can get your life back mm-hmm. you know and and really what really pisses me off excuse my french is the children on the backside of this alcoholism like i was that are falling through the cracks because these parents cannot parent when they're in the throes of alcoholism and they come to the healthcare setting to get help not even knowing what kind of help they need and they're not getting the right kind of help and they're not getting better. And where I'm seeing the same people funnel through for the last 15 years, it is a damn shame. It's criminal what's going on. I hate it. It's almost painful to watch, you know? And the other, one other point I wanna make, I've talked to so many people in recovery that said, heck yeah, I ran game on my psychiatrist. I, I researched on Google symptoms for bipolar and told them everything they wanted to hear and they walk out with a bipolar diagnosis i you know like i said i did my own little informal surveys back in the day we would maybe see a bipolar diagnose here and there not that often every chart i pick up bipolar bipolar why is that well listeners insurance companies pay more for a bipolar diagnosis so it's a lot easier to keep people in the hospital longer with a bipolar diagnosis. When you thats this is what they diagnosed my mother with now. And I want to say for her, once she sobered up, she never took another pill. Mm. So she was not bipolar. She was not depressive. And these doctors should not be diagnosing people with any mental health diagnosis until that person has a clean baseline of three to six months off drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. Because what they do is we get people coming into the hospital on a three-day crack binge, they're hallucinating, and they're going, oh my god, they're psychotic. Let's throw a Abilify and Seroquil at them. And these people never get off the drugs because now they say, oh, well, I do what I do because I'm mentally ill. Mm-hmm. No, you're not. So this is a huge disservice that's going on. And we need to talk about this more. But, you know, honestly, Sarah, you're going to find very few people who will admit this because they're scared. And I'm at the point in my life, I don't care. I just don't care. This is the truth. This is what's going on. And people need to be able to make informed decisions and start saying, do I want to accept these diagnoses when they diagnosed me when I was heavily abusing narcotics, benzos or and or alcohol. I mean, we have to be honest with ourselves too. But if you do want recovery and your doctor has slapped diagnosis on you and you know you were using when you got this diagnosis, maybe you wanna rethink that. Because there is a stigma when these patients come in the hospital and I've seen it happen over and over. They come in for a physical issue and the ED department sees a psych history and they immediately turf them over to us in psych. When a lot of times then we have to ship them back to the hospital because the person has something physically wrong. And they don't wanna believe that, so this is what's going on in healthcare. It's shameful. And I have nurse friends all over the country and it's not like it's just this way here in Ohio. It is everywhere. I'll shut
1: up now. It is, no, it is a disgrace. And I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you shared all that because people need to know about this. They people do. This is happening and continues to happen. And as you say, since your publication of this book, it has not gotten any better. In fact, it sounds like it's gotten worse. It is. And I can imagine with COVID, you're still working. I presume. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> I work a couple days a week. And honestly, I work because I want to stay in real time. Mm -hmm. with what is going on so I can share things that are happening today, not 10 years ago. Right. And so as long as I can, I'm going to keep my foot in that door so I can provide people with accurate information or a perspective. You don't have to agree with me, but this is my perspective of working in healthcare for 26 years as a recovering person. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like we are really doing a lot of justice for women or men in addiction. I think it's
1: shameful. And it
2: sounds like it's just purely money-driven. It really is. It is a business. And I think people need to understand that too. You know, Mm -hmm. Healthcare is a business. It is money-driven. And I know a lot of people get very attached to their doctors, and I wanna warn you on that too because they're people. And many of them are very, very good and they do care, but honestly, they don't care that much. Because they're they're preoccupied with their kids soccer games or their wife's mental health issues or so they're picking up your chart they're glancing through it they're looking at and many times it's like throwing darts and they'll say well they've been on this this, and this let's try this because they're not feeling any better. And that's how the conversation goes nine times out of 10. It's not like they're really caring about you as a person and what happens to you in your life when you walk out their door? Are you going to function? Are you going to be able to parent? Are you going to be able to work and have a life? And if these drugs are giving you, keep you on a couch, that's not a life. That's not recovery. And it's not fair. It's not fair to the person suffering and it's not there to the children or the spouse or the partner or the significant other on the backside. So we have to remember people want to have their lives back. I really believe that. And I think many come for help not knowing the right questions to ask. There have a lot of shame if they might be drinking, like you were saying, it's a secretive thing. So we have to let them know, Hey, it's okay to talk about it. And I know with patients that I felt were receptive, I would out myself and say, look, I'm in recovery. And, you know, I would do that often. Not with everybody though. I think we get a sixth sense and I could tell some, they're just want to do the game. They need three hots in a cot. They want a place to rest. You know, their friends are done with them couch surfing for the time being, that kind of thing. So, you know, I see a lot and it's just very sad that the doctors are unable to filter through. And a lot of the therapists have no mental health background. And let me just shock you with this, My nephew's getting married next week to a beautiful, amazing girl who just graduated medical school. So this is, again, recent real time. Mm -hmm. And she's in her first year of residency. She wants to be a family practice doctor. And I said, so Jessica, what did you learn about addiction? I know know. zip, big goose egg shameful this is a young woman she's not even 30 yet why are they not ta- teaching these doctors because they don't know what they're doing and it doesn't go with the narrative of let's medicate
1: it really is so shameful and it's really you know it it makes me scared for the future um yeah. future generations if if you know if we have young women and men who are graduating medical school who have absolutely no knowledge of addiction <clears throat> then we're just perpetuating this. Exactly. And, and um, and I was gonna say to you, like, what's the solution? Like what how do we, you know, and and my first thought is, well, we need to put like classes, like people who teach, you know, pre-med students about addiction. I went when I was in early sobriety, I saw a therapist. She knew nothing about AA or alcoholism. And I was the first, she told me that I was the first of a long line of, of people of, who struggled with drinking and who hated AA and were miserable. And she said, you're the first person, and this is on the brink of her retiring. Okay. She said that I was the first person who came to her, like just glowing about AA. Like I just, mm-hmm. I, I've had amazing experience in, in that program. And so she wanted to learn more. She took it upon herself to go to open AA meetings. Oh, that's wonderful. And I'm like, why can't everyone do that? Why can't all the doctors do that? It it should be a part of like, you know, like, you know, like college students students have internships. So like, why can't- It's so
2: funny because they do require nurses to do that. And I've been in open meetings where I'm sure maybe you've seen nursing students. They don't require the doctors to do that.
1: Right. Yeah. And exactly. I, I, my last episode, I don't know if you saw it, but I interviewed an ER doctor who wrote a book, Ballad of a Sober Man. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And he, it, like, he is kind of outing himself in a way, but he shares about his story. could be my story. It could be your story. It could be anyone's story. But the only difference is, is that he has a PhD after his name And he worked in, in the ER where he was brought to when he reached, you know, his bottom and his bottom was like so dangerous that they had to like put him in a psych ward. Like it was so bad. And, um, and he shares about this in his book. He's like an open book about it, but it, but there's a, he had to keep kind of like private about it because there's still that signal. He's a part of an, an AA group for doctors. Yeah. It's like they can't, they can't engage yeah. the rest of the community. And then I had another guest, she from Canada, she's from, um, can, uh, she's a psychologist and she was in recovery for years and she was told not to, to share it, that piece of herself with anybody. And she is actually going against that. And mm-hmm. part of her being on my podcast was a way to say no this does not help because she said i feel like my story can help some of my clients and being able to and that's what aa is about right is like we we share our stories we are compassionate with each other we don't judge each other we help each other we know where the the newcomer has been so we want to help them and guide them to get them to the place of recovery so they can help somebody else and it's just like it just it's just so fucked up like the way things are out in the world and and you know, I, I don't know. Like, I just, I I, think the
2: solution, Sarah, you asked, and I do want to address that. So what is the solution? You are being part of the solution, having conversations like this. And I always tell people, if you're really serious about getting sober, find somebody who's sober and talk to them because to go and rely on your doctor, forget it, just forget it. Um, they, they just don't know most of the time. Now, I'm, like I said, I don't want to say they all I'm sh- there are those rare gems out there that are familiar with it or doctors that are in recovery. Cause I have a few doctors in my book too. And they all said, we knew nothing about addiction until it happened to us. Right. So, and these are women that are still practicing physicians. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there is a huge problem there, but I think the, the hopeful side is, is, never has there been a better time to be sober. There are numerous podcasts. I do radio shows where we're talking about it, where, um, so between, you know, and, and I'm a little speck of sand in this sea of people that are discussing this topic. So there are a lot of us out there. There's a lot of, um, you know, Facebook groups and, and, things that you can research online and other ways to get sober so I think if you really want to get sober you can find your path yeah and um you know all I want to say is to the people that really are critical of AA shame on you I don't care that that didn't work for you or that you found another way but don't bash it because it does work for millions. And if, you know, it didn't, a lot of the patients that I get will say, well, it didn't work. And then you start asking them, well, how long did you give it a try? Well, I went to one meeting (laughs) Um, and I don't like all those people and they think they have to go there and spill their guts. And there's just a lot of bad information out there. So I just want to say, encourage people to find your path. Mm-hmm. give it a try if you don't like a particular meeting give it you know try other ones because they all do have a different vibe or if you find you know do your research find what works for you and go yep. for it but don't criticize something that has worked for millions of people
1: yes I agree I'm so glad you brought that up because yes you know AA work has worked and it continues to work for me but I am all <clears throat> very open-minded to the fact that there are countless recovery programs out there that are useful for other people more than AA was and that's fine you know like i just want every people who are struggling and sick and sobriety and miserable in their life and their life is unmanageable and like shit is hitting the fan everywhere in their lives hmm. whatever works to get them sober and feeling better and happy awesome because yeah. it's only gonna help to heal your family your children the world you know it's just um it's just uh, that's why I love being a part of you know social media and being able to um, connect with people on social media like yourself um, who've written books who um, who have just you know just having the experience alone of of, of being an addict um, a drug addict or an alcoholic and then getting into recovery like we all are just so pumped yeah. to be sober and we and because we know we know what it's like to be sick and suffering and now we know what it feels like to not be sick and suffering and we just like our heart it's like all heart it's all love for me like it's just heart and love and just wanting so much for people to be aware that there are solutions despite the fact that we're up against a huge monster Mm -hmm. two huge monsters you know big pharma big alcohol your book is are you writing a second book
2: you know, I finished a second book, Sarah, the one that's coming out, though, I, not till tw- not for like another year in 22, because I, that's the lineup. I, I couldn't commit to 21 because I wasn't sure if I was going to be done. It's very, very different. I don't, well, I, t- I told you a little bit about my horse. So my next book, here's the title, Cowgirl and a King, Why Letting Go is the Pathway to Peace. And the king is King Josephat in the Bible. So I've weaved it in. It's all very uh, cowgirlish. I like to go on cattle drives, like the real deal, cattle drives, because I am a cowgirl at heart, and that is my happy place. Awesome. And so I went on these cattle drives, and I wrote the book that, and everything is re- related to the, the cattle, or nature, or the horses. and. I love it. It's a little book. It's one of those that I want people to, I want it to be small where they can put it in their purse or coat pocket. And when they're having a bad day or keep it in your car, it's the kind of book you're going to want to buy like 10 of them and give them to your friends because it can snap you out of a mindset. So I'm very excited about it. It was the book that came to me and it ties in my deep love for animals, the horses, and what nature has taught me, because that is where I found God, was connecting with nature and realizing nature is too amazing to not have some intelligent being that figured this all out. Right, exactly. It just blows my mind. And when you really pay attention to it and then bonding with the spirit of a horse for me was something very spiritual. I still have like this deep ache in my heart for my horse that I could like cry just thinking about that's how much I love that animal and you know I guess I could have made the choice and had a horse in my adult life but you know my kids like I said we grew up that they were raised in the suburb because it was easier for them and you know but anyway so that's the next book and it's for everybody because it becomes not so much about not drinking as living Sarah we got to live and find a peaceful way to live. And even people that are not alcoholics, my God, everybody is suffering from anxiety and depression. That's all you hear. Anxiety, depression, anxiety, depression. But a lot of that is projecting, yep. controlling, yep. not letting go. These are things that you know everybody struggles with and so i want to address that now i address the alcoholism to the best of my ability and raising the bottom Mm -hmm. and now i want to help people live more peacefully because it's all in their head even like my husband you know like i said he's a professional guy he's got a lot of stress in that his head whirls and he'll say to me all the time like oh my god you were out like a light and i'm like yeah i just go to sleep at night you know i don't need I don't flop around like a fish because I'm so worried about everything because you know what recovery has taught me how to think and know that if I can't do anything about it right now, why am I going to spin out of control about it? Right. So, I mean, not that I practice that perfectly, but it's so much better. Yeah. And um, yeah, so that's my next one.
1: Oh, well, I'm glad you, you, you've, you're concluding this with more personal stuff about your life and the horse thing. I'm I'm so glad you brought up that um, piece. But really, I I'm just so thrilled to have had you on my podcast because of all the knowledge that you have that I know will be so useful to the listeners. Um, and um and your new book that's gonna come out in 2022. Twenty twenty-two, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um just so for the listeners again, if we can just make sure. Everyone knows how to find you. Um, can you just uh, tell them where like bottom what-
2: com, my website, and El Boucher author on Facebook and Instagram
1: and Twitter. You have like El Boucher author on Twitter. Yes, yes. You. I Sorry, mean, Facebook. It's raising the bottom. Uh, Facebook is raising the bottom. Okay, and I'll put it all in the show notes as well. Yeah. It's wonderful. Um, gosh, is there anything you want to, I mean, we've, we touched on a lot, I um, nearly you everything. Did,
2: Sarah, I feel like, did we get everything that you wanted to discuss? Because you know, your listeners certainly better than I would. So-
1: well, I'm still getting to know them because, you know, January 1st, it'll be a year that I launched the podcast. Okay. Well, and congratulations. So, thank you. And it's just a, it's a very, you know, I, I went into it, it kind of as my extension of my program of recovery um, and not necessarily to make money. And that's still not my, my, um, you know, what, what I'm kind of wanting to do. Like I'm more like, I just really want to spread the message that there is hope in recovery that, you know, life is possible and it's usually a lot better and easier yeah. and, and more fun on the other yeah. side of addiction. It is. At yes, least it for is. me. You know? Me too, me so, too. Yeah. Um, so anyway, we'll see, but you know, it, maybe people will ask for like a, a, a second interview with you to, to talk about more. Um, That's fine. Anytime, yeah. sir. I'm happy to do it. Oh, thank you so much. And yeah. I'll I'll get, really and following you on Twitter, like I'll just have to tell the listeners. You, I mean, because you post such in, amazing, poignant, deep, important quotes. You know, because you get some people who just put out these dingers that are just silly, but you like always put a lot of thought. Oh, and I'm, you. I'm constantly retweeting whatever you're tweeting. <laughs> thank
2: you. Thank
1: you. And it's 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 refreshing because so I kind of like envisioning your book will be much like what you're doing on Twitter like right now, yeah. in a way. Yeah. So I don't
2: know. Yeah, exactly. You're probably right. Yeah. Good. Well, thank you again so much. Thank you, Sarah. It was a pleasure to meet you. You're darling, and I'm happy that you asked me. It's I really appreciate it. So thank you very much. And send me the links when you get it all out, and I will tweet them and post and all that good stuff.
1: Thank you. All
2: right. All right, sweetie. Have a good day. You too. Take care. All right. Bye. Ciao, ciao. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that's a wrap on this episode. Thank you to my guest and all of you for listening. I hope what you heard inspires you to look for and recognize the gifts of sobriety. Sober Gratitudes, a podcast dedicated to delivering messages of hope through true stories of recovery. A sober life is possible if you truly want it.